Well, we, you did you did the change the intro the intro changed. Oh shit. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode twenty eight. In this episode, we are talking about Christina Thatcher's "More Than You Were." I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other. This is the normal part where I say it's going to be a pretty traditional episode for us yes. this week, but it's not. This is the first time that we're going to be doing this in this episode. This was your idea, Ryan. And uh, not only are we going to be talking about this poetry collection, we're going to be talking to the author about this poetry collection. Yes, as a matter of fact, sitting next to me in Seattle from Cardiff in Wales is Christina Thatcher herself. Christina is a creative writing lecturer at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Her work has been featured in over 40 publications, including the London Magazine, Planet Magazine, The Interpreter's House, and more. Her debut collection, More Than You Were, was shortlisted by Bear Fiction's debut poetry collection competition and published by Parthenon Books. The book tour for this debut has stopped in six countries, including the UK, US, Canada, Costa Rica, Switzerland, and Romania. More Than You Were is currently being translated into Spanish for Latin American tour in 2020. So without further ado, let us say hello to Christina. Hey everyone! Oh guys, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well thanks thanks for being here. This, obviously this is part holiday for us, part a work trip for you. Um, we went to the AWP conference, uh, together. You, you had a poetry reading in Vancouver. We have another one tonight in Seattle. So, uh, it's definitely, it's nice to take another break and kind of get into the, the literary stuff again. So thank you for carving out the time to, to be here with us. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's brilliant. Pleased to be here. Yeah. So, so we're, we're going to kind of askew our normal format a little bit here. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more free flowing, mostly because obviously we're, uh, where uh, Ryan is on location in Seattle. I'm back in the studio, not quite the <laughs> studio, but my version of the studio. Uh, and yeah, we're just, we're, I, I think we're going to delve a little bit more into, into poetry, I guess, as a, as a writing style or as a creative writing sort of form than maybe we have with previous styles in the past, which I think is cool. We kind of have our like poetry hierarchy here with, with our little, our little group, right? Yes. Our, our little poetry totem pole. And at the very bottom of the totem pole, uh, you know, the caboose of the totem pole, I guess. I don't know what <laughs> nomenclature uh, you would use for the different, you know, segments of the totem pole. But we've got me. I'm level zero. And then Ryan, certainly you're a step up above me as someone who studied creative writing, you know, actively uh, involves himself in creative writing. Hell, you've been published as well. Sure. And then Christina, yeah. I would say probably the the tier above you as well. You know, teaching that, <laughs> doing workshop, teaching you know creative writing workshops and that. Obviously, having a published you know work. I think your totem pole assessment is is probably you know fair enough. I mean, it it, com it comes down to to familiarity, right? And you know, I think that a lot of times when you just haven't encountered something, you just you know sometimes don't know how to respond to it. Um, but so. You know, Jacob, you not having much familiarity, you know, with poetry, definitely a, a a different case for Christina. Like Christina, how did you start to to find a love for poetry? When did that happen, or maybe who was somebody that was influential to you early on? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, oh, actually, I would say I kind of approached poetry late. Um, when I was a kid, I wrote a lot of short stories and did a lot of journaling, and I did write. I have to admit, a couple of really horrible, horrible poems that got published <laughs> in some school newspapers. But I don't remember really having poetry click for me until I was in an AP English class. So I was like, I think 11th grade, 12th grade, 17, mm -hmm. 18. And we were reading John Donne's Valediction Forbidding Morning. Have you ever read that, Ryan? I've read Donne, but I can't. That one doesn't ring a bell. Oh, God, no. it's so, Jacob, it's so dense. It's like a metaphysical <laughs> um, poem. It's extremely dense. And I remember being like, what is this? This is terrible. And then as soon as my teacher started to explain it, and she started to explain the metaphor of the compass as to lovers and one person is the central foot of the compass and the other person is rising to meet them and together they draw a perfect circle um mm -hmm. it suddenly clicked in my head that like oh my god 
poetry is talking on multiple levels and this is something yeah. that I never really had experienced before and that's kind of when I started to, to love it but I didn't really start writing it until maybe five six years later okay and I started to really get invested then um through my master's program yeah. I mean so, that's certainly one of the things that I think even I've kind of picked up on as sort of a fundamental element of poetry is that that hugely symbolic sort of uh like elevation of your writing to have kind of more than just sort of, all right, here's kind of a story that I'm trying to tell. And I will tell the story sort of in, in, you know, the means necessary to do. So there's a lot of how can I sort of, I, I want to tell the story, but I want to also sort of tell the story of the emotions behind the story and tell the story of all these other elements that kind of go in that, you know, it, it takes a couple of times of reading. Cause you know, a lot of times with me, uh, you know, I'll, I I go back and I'll reread things, and it's like, oh, okay, you know, I get that little little extra dose of it. But I feel like poetry, even more so than than anything else, it, it's not even so much as like going back and rereading it, but kind of the way that it's sort of written. You have to you have to understand, I guess, the ways in which uh, that sort of emphasis is placed in order to sort of create that extra layer of, of symbolism, that extra layer of like visual imagery within there, because I, that was, that is a nice little element that I, that I kind of pick up on that. I guess, you know, you don't have to be, I don't have to be Mr. Smarty pants, you know, Ryan Keith over here going and getting my creative <laughs> writing degree to pick up on that. But no, it was, it, it was interesting. This is, you know, this is, this is unique for this episode, I guess is unique for multiple reasons. Cause not only kind of our, our structure here and, and having Christina with us, but just even going into a poetry collection, you know, yeah. we've we've really kind of limited ourselves mostly to long form fiction, and we had you know one short story collection, and so this is, I don't know, it's it's just a nice little interesting um, jumping off point, or, or kind of like a little glimpse into this sort of world. I just imagine yeah. it's like this like little keyhole, and I look through, and it's just like oh god, it's like a kaleidoscope or something of of just you know raw sort of creativity because I. If there's one thing that I that I guess I can say that I feel about poetry as someone who's, again, not very heavily involved in it, of most of the writing styles that I guess I've I've been privileged to to read, whether it's nonfiction or fiction or anything like that, poetry seems like the most just sort of like out there in a sense yeah. of poets will just say, you know, this is the it's very sort of here is my vision for this and because it's kind of not necessarily limited to this you know oh it's this 300 page work of fiction and so you kind of have these elements that have to be you know you a lot of times poetry you know it's a more condensed it's more short you can kind of get these sort of creative ideas into the things that you're writing and and i know as somebody who i i appreciate that in like other mediums of art whether yeah. it's whether it's, you know, painting or music or film or TV like that, like I can really appreciate that from poetry. That's kind of the big thing that I get away from that, mostly so, even as kind of a level zero person. You know, you, you brought up something interesting, you know, about just the, the, the smaller nature of poetry. And I, th I think sometimes that, you know, when, when people look at poems, they think that, you know, they, they just come out in these in these small things and that they're really not like, a big effort um, because they're not, you know, the, the length of a novel or even, you know, short story or, or what have yeah. you. But um, like, what would you say, Christina, that you, you, how much time did you spend writing your, your collection? Oh my gosh. Um, a long time. So my, my dad died in 2013 and I, I just felt so compelled to write. I mean, I was already, I'd done my master's in creative writing and I use writing mm. to deal with lots of things in my life, but I wrote, every single day, um, swathes and swathes and swathes of things. Um, and this collection didn't get submitted to a competition until 2015. Okay. So there were two years of me writing this collection. And really what this one was about, I mean, obviously this is about my dad's death, so it was a very big thing. Grief is very big. So yeah. in order to produce this collection, I wrote, um, you know, hundreds of pages of prose, like just journaling and... Um, trying to remember everything about my dad. I was really afraid that I was going to lose all my memories of him. Sure. And then, so the process of this question was really just a whittling down, you know, actually taking these key moments or these key ideas, um, key experiences, and really trying to get them as 
brief and condensed as possible so that every single word and every single image was very purposeful and made the biggest impact with the fewest amount of words. And so that practice, that took two years to be able to produce yeah. that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, Jacob, this idea of storytelling. I loved what you were talking about then because you remember, you know, with poetry, you have the surface story, you know, the sort of narrative mm -hmm. story that the poems are telling. But then you yeah. have this these other stories underneath where you're, um, you know, the poem isn't telling you, oh, okay, this made me feel a certain way. It's really just giving you a snapshot of um, a particular experience. And then underneath, it's asking you questions. So um, asking you questions about, say, you know, what it means to live or what this person meant or what, in my case, addiction means or grief means or fatherhood or daughterhood means. So you have this kind of other story that you're answering questions to underneath, which is quite yeah. exciting and interesting. So I was trying to balance that with my collection, like, what's the narrative story? So what's the story I want to tell here? about my experience with addiction, grief, and my father. But then what do I want my readers to ask and see and infer underneath that story? And it's okay if they never ask those questions, but yeah. it's like the secondary layer, which is quite fun to think about how you write something that isn't on the page. No, no, absolutely. And and as somebody kind of reading through this, I did get that in a lot of ways, just sort of that, you know, there's the, the I guess the kind of, Obviously, the, the quintessential theme that we get throughout here is loss and even especially above that kind of familial loss and even beyond like I think one of my favorite ones in here was connection uh, where you were talking about your grandmother-in-law and it's just yeah like poetry I guess or, or at least kind of the way that the way that the way that you made this um, is it's very approachable even on a personal level like obviously you get your story through here but there's so many elements in here that that kind of sit with you and go, oh yeah, okay, well, I kind of have that own like self-realization of like my own sort of struggles with familial loss and, uh, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, one of the interesting things reading through this was, and I gathered that it was about two years, you know, kind of reading through the beginning, you know, Ryan was asking about how long, cause we kind of get the, the beginnings of it. And then towards the end, we kind of have the two year anniversary mm -hmm. and, and we sort of get things, uh, in that nature. And it's just, it's, it's amazing to me, like, I'm sure that this was something, and like you said, just every day you're kind of putting down pen to paper and writing through this. How therapeutic do you think this was for you? Because obviously this is like, you know, these were very, this is kind of a very personal thing to be to be writing about, uh, not even just with your own experience, but just, just, I don't know, just personal in general, because having that sort of public eyes on, on your emotions, on your feelings, on, you know, that just the overall grief and sense of loss, like how therapeutic, I guess, was, was writing for this in that whole process of dealing with that grief? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, I mean, this obviously, this is such a personal collection and I think that it was hugely therapeutic really to write, yeah. um, through all the stages of it. So like initially the writing was like just a compulsion. I didn't know what to do. I mean, my dad had died. I wasn't expecting it. So I wrote as much as I possibly could. But then I think the, the sort of next stage where I was trying to identify things um, to put into a collection and to make into poetry, that kind of came with an understanding that other people were going to read it, or I, you know, I'd hoped that maybe one day <laughs> other yeah. people would read it. And so there was this other level of sort of therapeuticness where I realized that I wasn't going to have to be alone in this. And so each poem could act as a way to like reach out to other people who had experienced or might not have experience of, of grief, but will at one point in their lives, of course, experience that. So that felt like a comforting thing to do was to was to choose specific moments and ideas that were, of course, personal to me, but that could reach out to other people. So that was really nice. And then I think at the end, when the book was polished and, um, you know, it got shortlisted for a prize and then it got published. There was also an extra layer of kind of therapeuticness in that therapeuticness. If that's a word. Um, who knows? It's it's a better the bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. there, we make our own words here on this podcast. Here, why not? Um, I mean, there there are plenty of words. That of. <laughs> so so yeah, like when the book actually was ready, um, there was also this great sense of uh, catharsis from that because. I felt like out of this whole mess and mire, you know, my dad's addiction was very difficult and it was happening when I was a kid. 
and then the grief this like something that's imposed upon you when you lose your parent you know you can't control it it felt that by choosing every single word and every single line break and the way the poems were going to be ordered and the way the story was being told it felt like I had regained some control over this very chaotic thing and that was amazing and now I travel with this book. I mean, we just, um, the book just sold into a poetry bookshop in Seattle today. Yeah. And, um, you know, my dad's now traveling as well. He's continuing. He loved to travel. He's continuing that. He's out there in the world. And we can have this kind of weird poetic relationship with him gone. So there's lots of ways in which the book was therapeutic. Um, and in which the craft of making the poems and publishing the poems was therapeutic as well. So, yeah, it was, I think, very necessary for me at that time. <clears throat> So one of the things I was I was curious about, um, you have the poem about the uh, about the squirrels, the neighbors, you know that, uh, you know would just come by and ask questions. One, the the one gentleman wanted to go through the house. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I wondered if maybe you would you would read one of those those poems um, for us, um, just to get a sense of of your voice. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting that you picked this poem. Um, so this this poem is in a point in the collection because the collection is pretty chronological um where after my dad dies i go down to his house in florida which i'd never been to um and that's where he died and so as soon as we arrived his neighbors came out and this is the poem that i wrote um to reflect that experience so this is called something else the squirrels are coming my uncle said that's what i call the neighbors they came swift and chattering within minutes to tell me what my father looked like when they found him, a blowfish on the bed. She said she had a miscarriage, but hoped for another child. My dad bought her a wedding dress, tucked away in the closet, ready for when she stopped drinking. Standing next to a pile of dog shit, she asked me for money. I was the cleaner, she said. I cleaned the house. So... That, that is just one of the really odd things that, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. happened after my dad's death and the sort of black comedy of it. Actually, yeah. there are some poems in this section of the book where, which on you know reflection I find really darkly comedic. Um, and sometimes when I read them at poetry uh, collection, uh, poetry readings, um, people do laugh and I'm like, yes, you are my people. Yeah, Let's yeah. laugh at this really messed up thing that happened. How different is it really to have somebody read a poetry collection full of, you know, your, your grief and, and your, um, you know, difficulty uh, with, with your family versus, you know, kind of these, these squirrels going through ostensibly aren't readers just all kind of now squirrels uh, in, in that sense? Um, or, you know, is, is it different um, because you're presenting it as opposed to being asked to, um, to give it up in a way? That's such an interesting question, this idea of like um, voyeurism and what it means to, to bear ourselves. So I guess there's two kind of things here. So one, the neighbors coming in, the reason I wrote this poem and also the guide one um, and some others that are mm-hmm. about people kind of imposing themselves on me during this time was that, you know, that wasn't a choice. Right. And so um, I felt like their interactions with me, um, you know, the neighbors and the people at the funeral and things like that. That those weren't um, anything I had control over. And a lot of this was around the difficulty of um, feeling out of control after my dad died. And I, and I also just found the way that people interacted with me sort of comical and odd and strange. So I wanted to document that because, you know, poetry, if nothing else, is like a witness to the things which we experience in our lives. Yep. But in terms of that, so that kind of voyeuristic coming from the outside into my life like that, um, because they weren't invited or asked, that was problematic for me and there was a part of the documenting that that I wanted people to be aware of so I wrote this poem so they could be like look at how weird this was right right. um but then with my collection I don't necessarily feel like people are being voyeuristic because I'm sort of like come on in you know so so one of the things that I wanted to do with the collection is it was I wanted to invite people into what it what it meant to grow up with someone who was an addict and to go through grieving for an addict because it's very complicated and difficult. Um, that decision to make that public was hard. Like I found it, I was really scared. And I wrote a blog post before I started sending the book out about how I was really afraid to let go of the collection and letting go of it felt like letting go of my dad. And yeah. also like exposing him in a way which he didn't have control over either because mm-hmm. he was already dead. Um, but at the end, I felt like 
making the choice to be vulnerable was a powerful thing. And if I could make myself vulnerable and open up my life in that way, then maybe I could help other people or maybe I could um, meet other people who'd experienced similar things or maybe I could um, interest people in poetry who might be interested in this topic but might not normally read poetry. So I felt like um, that was a choice for me to be able to like let people look into that. Um, so it's quite a different type of voyeurism, I guess. And I don't, I don't mind that though. It does. It did bring up something interesting for me recently because a couple of my students have read my collection. Okay. So I teach at a university. So I teach at Cardiff Metropolitan University in Wales and I love teaching. And I love my students, but obviously when you're a teacher, you're sort of in a position of power, right? So you're, yep. Yep. you're facilitating and you're doing workshops and things like that. Well, when students read this book, which is wholly vulnerable, mm-hmm. it does change the way that they interact with me. And when they talk to me about it, they often feel a little embarrassed. Like, oh, I read your book. It's like they, they found out a secret about me. Right. Which is fascinating, right? Because this is public. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that kind of shows some of that dynamics that they are afraid to be voyeurs into my life in some ways. Like they desire it, but they're worried about it. And sure. that's really interesting. Yeah, I, re- I remember uh, I felt a little bit awkward about reading some of my uh, my professor stuff in, in undergrad just because, I, I personally, I, I think I didn't want to pass judgment on their work because these mm. are the people that I'm supposed to be learning from. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, fair, that's fair. <laughs> so I, I avoided reading all of my professors until after I was I was out, and then I read everything they, they had published. But yeah, that, that would be that would be really kind of uncomfortable in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, th- I think that's probably important, you know, lesson. I mean, obviously, you know, not to be too gushing, but, you know, you deal with a an extremely complex subject and, um, you know, something that is it is common, but it is not, you know, as common as, you know, say just death in general, you know, addiction mm-hmm. and and death and the family politics. I mean, you also deal with, you know, just parenting uh, in, in this collection as well i mean you know that's that's something i think that's probably good for your students to see too is that you know you are capable of packaging this this complex idea into a very approachable you know body of work um to start a conversation about it um jacob did you have a question yeah so i i wanted to say i i did like kind of the the trajectory not that there was necessarily a trajectory but i i did feel like finding you at the very end of this when we're in the music store like i felt like that was a really good way to kind of conclude this book and so i just kind of had like a two-part question really um when you were kind of putting this together did you in your mind know how you were going to sort of conclude it did you did you kind of have an idea i guess of of things that you sort of wanted to make sure was in here as far as what you were writing about and afterwards you know after you've written this after you've published how often it how often would you say you still probably think and and, and write and about about your dad and about you know kind of the the sort of continuation of this if that's something that is still sort of obviously occupying a space within your mind and within that sort of creative process Oh, really interesting questions, Jacob. Okay, um, so I guess the first one to tackle is about um, yeah, what's included in the collection, the way that it's ordered. I'm really happy that you um, found the finding you ending as like you know something that was valuable and strong at the end. I think that was a very deliberate choice. Although to be quite honest, that poem was like almost not written. I found that poem so hard wow. to write. Really, like that yeah. was the most difficult poem to write because I think that was the most emotional. Um, experience for me and obviously it's one of the there are very few poems where I explain my emotions explicitly where I say like I cried um, or showed like explained how I experienced the emotion but that I mean I was like I lost it in that music store and so that was a really real experience for me and so I found that very difficult to write but anyway um, I didn't really know to be honest where the collection was going I knew I had enough because I wrote so many poems I mean there's oh yeah this is quite a long collection it's like 80 poems or 77 poems, something like that. And, um, you know, I think I probably wrote 150, maybe 160 that didn't go in. Um, so what happened initially was I wrote all these and then I started to group them. I was like, okay, these are about my dad. These are about my family. These are about my brother. Um, these are the lessons. These are things from my childhood. And I was like grouping them. And there are these pictures of me just spreading out all these poems and trying to find their themes and move them around. Um, 
And eventually I kind of realized that instead of them being grouped in these ways, so like my brother, my mom, my father, my grief, that what I really wanted to do was just tell the linear story of yeah. this. So, Have it more chronologically. Yeah, tell it more chronologically. Yeah. So I move the poems around and then I punctuate it um, them with the little lesson poems, um, which were all lessons that my family or my dad taught me because those kept coming up um, every day during my grief. Like I had these memories all the time kind of interrupting me. And so obviously in a chronological way, because as you said, toward the end of the book, it's two years on, you know, two and a half years on. Finding You happened when I went to my dad's house, which was only a couple months after. Mm -hmm. But I felt like I had to end the book with that poem because one of my greatest fears for this book was that people would read it and think my dad was a monster. Yeah. I didn't want them to read it and think he was this terrible man um, that was abusive or that was always, um, you know, totally indulged in his addictions. And I was so scared that that was going to happen. And I really wanted the collection to end on Finding You once it was written because... I wanted people to see that, you know, he was so much more than that. You know, he, he did love and he was a victim and he was a father and he was a friend. He was all these things outside of his, just his addiction. Um, and even the fact that the guy in the music store knew his name, like that was amazing. It was like he existed outside of this addict's life. So it was important to me to end it there, but that process took a long time. It was probably like three months on me deciding like how to order it and how to manage it. Um, and in terms of the topic, well, I have to say I wrote a lot of poems after this collection came out about my dad because it still wasn't total. everything wasn't totally resolved. But for mm-hmm. my second collection, which is coming out next spring, I think there's only like three poems in the whole collection that reference him or are about him. But really the next two collections, the one coming up, which is called How to Carry Fire, and the third one, which got a bursary last year, so that's tentatively called Breaking a Mare. They're sort of um, poetic memoirs. So this one really deals with my dad. And the second one deals a lot with my brother, who's a heroin addict, and also with my husband. So like the other men in my life. And then the the third is about my mom and my grandmother and the women in my family. Um, So they're they're kind of all, I guess, memoirs and based around my experience, but they're written in very different ways. Um, And yeah, my dad's kind of fading a bit and he's losing my poetic attention which is a little sad um in some ways i guess but I, the book is always there and it will always yeah. like embody the and that's time. yeah that's that's the i mean that's the the thing to take away from here is you do he is kind of immortalized in this you know yeah. that mm-hmm. you always have this to kind of go back to um i think it's interesting that you had said kind of in your collections writing about the men in your life and then family that it, it does seem like family is kind of a big sort of core influence on this like creative space uh, with your writing. Uh, has that always kind of been the case or is it just, cause I know, I know, I guess for me, I guess just in, in sort of where space, where, where things sort of line up in my brain and how they occupy my thoughts. Like I, I find myself as I'm getting older, like family is starting to eke out more space kind of within my, uh, not even just within, you know, creative thought process, but just in my brain as a whole. And I, it's just curious, is that kind of always been something you've been very passionate about with your, with your writing and poetry? Is that something that you kind of see like, as you sort of experience these things, like, familial loss or sort of you know the the founding of your own family and things of this nature that it kind of blossoms within that yeah i think it's kind of it's just coming out of a place of need really because um so i have always really liked writing about my family and in fact when i went to um, my master's program in cardiff i went in as a nonfiction writer so i was Mm -hmm. a life writer and i was writing yeah i was writing personal essays about my family um and about other things that happened to me. So, but through the course of that master's, I was introduced to a lot of poetry and um, and microfiction, all different kinds of things. So that gave me a space to explore. And then I turned to poetry and to fiction, both doing different things. And, um, you know, I guess I never expected to write a poetry collection about my family. I just had yeah. it, it wasn't on the cards. I had my nonfiction where I could write about them. I had my fiction where I wrote about all my random curiosities, like how to gut fish and how to make bells and all these other really weird things that I got to research Mm. in short stories. And then I had poetry where I was looking at bigger ideas. So initially when I was writing poetry there, it was about craft and craftsmanship and um, political things. And then suddenly, I mean, 
all these horrible things that are happening in my family and it just didn't feel adequate to be able to talk about them in a direct and precise way through life writing and poetry became that vessel. It became this way where I could pick and choose the snapshots of my life that I wanted to share. And that mm -hmm. became really the perfect form um, for dealing with this. So yeah. And I guess my second collection was really born more out of my brother's heroin addiction. So after my dad died, um, there is like a one or two poems in the collection about, you know, him coming to the funeral in handcuffs and him also being an addict and worried that he might die too. Um, yeah. we thought he was going to stay clean and then not that long ago he relapsed and now he's back in prison. And so I'm finding myself just writing about that because that's very difficult and, and we have a great relationship. So I feel like that occupies my mind. And then the other side is my home life, which is really happy with my husband. Yeah. And that occupies me too. So I just feel like this is what's happening. <laughs> I'm just, you know, yeah. this is, yeah. this is where is... the poems are coming. So this is yeah. what's, what's yeah. going to happen for a while, I think. It's very obvious that that kind of the the driving force behind this is obviously you know your personal emotions and sort of the the thoughts that are going along with these uh, relationships that you have. So it it makes sense that that is a huge sort of driving force behind kind of the the sort of creative outpouring of poetry. So I, I kind of liked what you, what you said about you know the fact that you kind of felt like your dad was maybe fading a little bit, um, but I. I, I just thought to myself like as you were saying that that's that's kind of part of grief right mm -hmm. is that you know it's grief is never and you i think you said this the other day uh when we were talking grief's never like this sort of front-loaded thing where you just kind of plow through and it's like constantly diminishing um it does sort of ebb and flow as far as you know uh how much it consumes your you know emotion and and attention but time does run its course, and eventually, you know, the, the, the sort of healing part of, of grief is that it doesn't monopolize, you know, so much of uh, just who you are as a person at that point in time. Completely. Um, and I, I imagine that, that writing this collection, you know, was, was probably a huge part of that for you. Do you think that, like, you would have maybe responded as as well as you did with you know your your dad's death and, and addiction and all this if you didn't have that creative outlet to to sort of lean on no way <laughs> <laughs> i think you know i i remember saying in the beginning um to a lot of people like i don't know how people do this without poetry yeah. like i really had no idea how someone else would um, manage their grief and i was very lucky in cardiff because um as soon as my dad died I have a lot of friends whose fathers like committed suicide or had drug problems. And I even went to dinner like two days after for a dead dad's club at, at my friend's house where we just talked about our dead dads and ate kebabs. <laughs> it was <laughs> okay. amazing. Um, so I did have a lot of like sort of support from my friendship group, but that wasn't really enough because there's only sure. so much that you can just, just blanket talk about because there's real no, there's really no solving grief. And I think I'm a pretty pragmatic person. And although I am emotional, what I really wanted to do was just like win grief. I wanted to be like, yep, I'm just going to talk through this and I'm going to get over it. But that isn't what yeah. happens. And yeah. I think by writing about it, I could delve at any time in any private moment. I have a really bad insomnia when my dad, um, just after my dad died for the first few months. Mm -hmm. And in those like kind of dark, quiet nights I could write and it helped. It helped me to reflect on him as a person, on my relationship with him, on where I was going, on what his death meant. Um, and it, it let me go deep than I think conversations can comfortably allow you to, especially with people you just, you know, you know, your friends that sure. they are there for you. But, um, so I think it was a combination of this writing this. And then also I started death writing workshops in Cardiff where I brought poems that I had read because I was also reading a lot of poems about grief, um, and asked other people to write with me. And that was amazing because people were coming and talking about grief you know, from 20 years ago that was still weighing on them or yeah. that they'd never talked about. And so I felt this on one hand, the poetry collection gave me a chance to look really inwardly at my grief and like get through it in a way, which I could never have done otherwise. And then the death writing workshops, which emerged from all the poetry I was reading and writing, um, let me connect and feel less alone. So I think those two, that two pronged approach really like helped me with my grief. And I think if I didn't do it, I might be an absolute basket case. I don't know. It could have just changed completely like the way that I managed it. And I would have taken a much longer time. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of with you. I mean, you know, my grandmother passed away last year. It was it was like a reaction for me just to to start writing about it and you know writing poetry about it. So, yeah, I I do just I do think sometimes like if I didn't have this this sort of outlet, um, what what would I do? Um, and I I don't know what the answer is. Like I don't know what the what the average person is. I. I you know, would, is bottle it up. <laughs> That's yeah. Well, I, you know, as someone, you know, I lost my grandfather last year as well, and I'm not, I'm, I didn't really write or anything about. It. I'm trying to think. I, I guess the, I don't know. I, I guess the other side of grief management. Sure, there are people that that try to, you know, throw themselves into some other activity or creative hobby or um, some other thing in their life, whether it's their job, whether it's, you know, family, yeah. whether they have something that they're interested in, they do. And I, I think that that's, I think that that can be useful, but that's more of a, you're trying to suppress. Whereas I guess in writing, you're more embracing it. And yeah. I can definitely see how that can be, um, not necessarily an easier way to get over something or an easier way to get through that level of grief, but maybe a more, um, a more potent way because you know when you write something down when you write down thoughts and your feelings and all these sort of things together in this way it's you kind of it, it is kind of not like lifting that burden off of you but at least transferring some of it to this sort of like you know to like a page you're, you're transferring these ideas and these thoughts and it's always something that you can kind of come back and, and take a look at and amend and think about and write and it's not necessarily something that you have to keep sort of compartmentalized within yourself all of the time that I think leads to people struggling with grief, you know, five, 10, 20 years down the road is when yeah. you kind of have this sort of idea that you just grieve for something to be gotten over or forgotten, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to something embraced. And at least not that, you know, everyone's like grief, grief, yay! you know, not embracing right. in a traditional way, but embracing the fact that grief can be a primary mover for a lot of creative or otherwise positive things in your life and i think obviously you know this work is is an example of that because you know without this without this experience in your life you would not have been able to do you you would not have been able to write this i mean you would have been able obviously to write to write works that would have been you know perfectly fine but not in the same vein of as personal experience or as sort of in that vein of just sort of raw emotional, you know, I guess, you know, in, in, in dealing with that. And so, yeah, you know, I think that the way that you put it in, in writing and in, in having that creative outlet, you know, it's, it helps you not conquer grief, but to channel it into something that can be much more positive. You know, I, I kind of look, look at it as, as almost like translation. I think one thing, especially in American culture, we don't do very well is, you know, figuring out how to talk about different life events, right? Like, you know, we're, we're taught sort of the, the social aspects of, uh, you know, you go to a job interview, this, this is how you behave or whatever. Um, mm. there are some social norms that I think are put on us. Um, you know, as far as like grief, uh, it, one of your poems and forgive me for, for not, remembering the name but you talk about it at the funeral you know not losing you know your your emotions you know you're expected to, to sort of keep it together and but on, but on the other side there's there's really no like common language in american culture for grief which i think is really problematic i mean perfect example i mean jacob I, i'd forgotten that your your grandfather had passed away and i mean we, we talk all the time about books in depth but we never had a you know conversation about that other mm -hmm. than just sort of like hey is everything okay and that's that's yeah. sort of what we're taught is that sort of basic thing and even if it wasn't you know e even though we're good friends you probably wouldn't come to me and um you know and just start divulging things unless you really needed to but sure. i think the great thing about you know writing whether you're uh you know partaking in in the creative process or consuming it you know i think something like christina's collection does sort of help set a narrative that, um, you know, there are commonalities in how people, you know, work through things, you know, complicated emotions um, abound, you know, strange bits of humor, uh, you know, especially as, as time goes on. Um, so I, I think I think it's really important that, you know, we we find ways to, to foster conversations around that sort of thing. And, I, you know, I think 
like anything, literature is always a always a good way to, to facilitate those things. Yeah, Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, I have to say that one of my absolute joys about reading this collection out now, so this has been, I've done about 35 readings in now six countries, because I just read in Canada, Yeah. so it's really exciting. So I've done these readings, you know. In the so UK. what are the six? Hold on. I, I, I hate to interrupt, but we have Canada, the U.S. <laughs> so we got Canada, the U.S., UK, the U.K. Um, I've okay. also got Costa Rica, Romania, and really? Switzerland. Really? Yeah. So, um, so I've got quite a different, you know, I've got Eastern European culture, like in Romania, I've got Central America and Costa Rica, um, obviously the UK and the US, although they speak the same language, their cultures are very different and their understandings around Greece are very different. Canada just happened. That was really interesting. Um, you know, a couple of days ago. So I've read this collection out in a lot of different countries and a lot of different contexts. Um, and one of the things I still love about reading this is that people come up to me after the readings and tell me about their grief so they tell mm-hmm. me somebody about in their family who has died um they they tell me which poems they connect with they, they sometimes talk at length and hug me and maybe even cry and it's amazing because i'm a stranger to them right and i've read these poems out about my personal experience and it's um encouraged them to be vulnerable themselves and tell me their story and you know, that is exactly what it's doing. It's opening up this conversation around grief, which I'm so eternally grateful for because I felt like I couldn't talk about my grief with other people. And now by doing this and sharing this publicly, um, I can, and it's encouraging other people to do that too. And that feels really great. Um, and I feel myself just, I am so at ease in every situation talking about death now. It's kind of a joke. Um, Rich, Rich always says every party we go to, I will find the people who are grieving and hone in on them. Um, but it's true. I mean, I feel very comfortable talking about death, about grief, about addiction, um, and do it regularly. And I think that gives permission for other people to do that too. And I think that's something that we, we need to do more of to just be able to be open, um, when we need to. Completely agree. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I wanted to change gears a little bit and just talk okay. sort of about like poetry in general. I'm pretty sure April is National Poetry Month. It is indeed. Um, and we are uh, we're now like eight days calculated. In as of the, as calculated. Of the, yes, calculated. This is our first April episode, so yeah, calculated. I am nothing if not intentional when it comes to <laughs> comes to my planning, uh, which means I'm I am nothing and not intentional. Um. <laughs> So I, I kind of wanted to just talk to you a little bit about just like being a poet in general and, you know, what is, what is like day-to-day life for you? Obviously you're in, you're in academia, so, um, you know, you've, you've got that part of your life going on, but like, what is it, what does it mean to you and what does it look like, um, to be a poet? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I've never been asked that before. Um, so I think being a poet is kind of weird because, um, everything that I do is possible, um, material for poetry. Mm-hmm. So in general, because I have an academic job now, which I'm very lucky to have, um, I teach poetry and teach nonfiction to students at an undergraduate level and at a master's level. So most days I am teaching, um, but every day I'm also reading. I read at least you know 10 to 15 poems every single day, whether that's part of a collection or whether that's through something like the Academy of American Poets or the Poetry Foundation on a particular topic that I'm interested in. Um, I often write, but not full poems. Um, I tend to write notes of things that happen in the day or um, different ideas, like conceptual ideas about a poem um, for the future. And then I save all of it up. Owen Shears, who's a Welsh poet, often says this is called hot housing. So you have all <laughs> your ideas and you like hot house them for a while. And then when you're at a writing retreat, you just bang out like 20, 30 poems or whatever. Yeah. So I tend to do this. So I tend to collect things throughout the day. Um, yeah. Most evenings, I tend to go out as well. So Cardiff is a great literary um, city. So I tend to only be home um, one evening in the week and one evening on the weekend. And the rest of the evenings, I am out either leading workshops, running my writer's group, going to a poetry event, doing a reading. Um, in fact, when I get back, I'll be leading a workshop for the poetry school on family politics. Then I'm leading a workshop um, for the Abergavenny Writing Festival on loss and lostness. Um, and then I'm doing two readings, one in Cardiff and one in Newport. So it's quite busy yeah. life, poet's life. Yeah. Um, lots of traveling, lots of reading, lots of meeting people, um, and lots of time and as much time as I can snatch with, with the words and with thinking, thinking time is important. So one other thing I, I think is interesting, I've mentioned this several times on our, our trips so far, is that 
you know, we're in this place in, as a society where we consume, you know, like these just microcosms of information, whether it's, you know, short clip as we scroll through Facebook, you know, statuses, Instagram, it's all these, these little snippets of things. But, you know, when you talk about the literary world, you know, the novel is, is really still king as far as, you know, just consumption, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it, is it ever frustrating to you as a poet that, um, that poetry gets so overlooked, um, when it seems to be like the perfect form for our, like, you know, attention deficit society? (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's, yeah, that's, it's a really good thing. And I love having these discussions. Um, it's a good thing to talk about. So frustrating isn't, isn't necessarily how I feel. So I don't feel frustrated as a poet, um, for not having recognition in one sense. There's this kind of nice thing about being a poet that you're, you're talking to poetry. You're mostly talking to poetry fans. Of mm-hmm. course, you know, when I go to reading, some people are there who've never read poetry before and converting them always feels really nice. Um, mm-hmm. but it, you, you kind of get a pass if you're a poet to be like weird and experimental and nice because of this. So yeah. there, on one side, that, that's not, that's a nice thing. But on the other side, actually, at least in the UK, poetry is on the up. So poetry sales have increased exponentially in the recent years. Um, and I think it's exactly because of what you've said. There's tons of Instagram poets. There's lots of poets who are starting to publish now who are... Um, you know, starting off on social media and then getting big publishing houses like Picador or HarperCollins or, you know, not HarperCollins, Penguin, to publish them. And that's amazing. Um, So poetry is on the up. But I think when I think about it um, in terms of the novel, like why the novel is king, I think this comes back to something Jacob was talking about earlier about being on the level zero. Like the way that we're taught poetry in school is um, as this kind of puzzle to dissect we're not mm. we're not really taught to just pleasurably read poetry and, yep. and try and, and to think about it um, in whatever way we want to think about it. So I always think about poetry as just one side of a conversation. Like the poet is starting the conversation and then I'm filling in the other side of the conversation as the reader. And whatever way I interpret that poem is okay. And whatever way I feel about the poem is okay. And it's just a, a nice experience to read a poem, even if I don't understand it and not understanding something is also okay. Um, but I think that we're not taught about poetry like that. We're taught right. about it like that it has to be um, kind of a difficult code to crack and that we have to be clever and smart in order to get inside of poetry. And that, I think, takes people away from what it really is, which is just another form of telling stories and reflecting mm-hmm. the lives that we live in and the society in which we live. So I think if we begin to unpick the way that we are approach poetry at schools, say, for instance... Um, that will go a long way into understanding um, poetry at a younger generation and getting that out more um, and getting it to be a bigger seller. Because I agree, I think poetry is like the perfect form for today's world. Poetry and microfiction, yeah. they're like right on point. Yep. And we just need to give people an easier way to enter it because it's it can literally be, there are many different types of, there are so many different types of poetry. There is something for everyone. Um, but people often just feel too afraid because of the way that they were raised or in school to approach poetry um, and just feel like it isn't for them, which is a real shame. So suppose, you know, somebody listened to to the podcast, you know, read or, you know, hopefully also, you know, bought and read your collection and wanted to read more poetry. Like where what, what would be the ideal resources for somebody, you know, who has never read poetry before to just get exposure to you know, maybe who to read, um, you know, or, or where to go to, to find good poetry? This is such a good question. Um, so what, what I would recommend to everybody to do is to sign up for a poem a day on the Academy of American Poets website. Okay. So every single day you get an emailed poem into your inbox and you can just have a read it. If you like it, save it, look at that collection. If you don't like it, delete it doesn't matter you can just then get exposure to lots of contemporary poets who are writing today um there's also a great poetry foundation website where you can um, look at poems magazines like the kenyan review also do a poetry a day so these will expose you to lots and lots of different kinds of poets um if you are serious and want to buy some collections um, right off the bat then you can look at prize winning collections so poets Mm -hmm. who've won some prizes um, I would personally suggest that people look for narrative poets as opposed to like lyric or ex- experimental poets okay. because narrative poets write in a way which is more closely linked to prose. So they tend to write in a way which is, tells a story. So my, my poetry, although short, is, would be classed as narrative poetry. 
um, mm. poets that I love, like Sharon Olds and Mary Oliver, they also write in that way. Um, you can also look at poems that you're interested in in terms of your topic. So if people are interested in grief, I would recommend 100% reading Her Birth by Rebecca Goss, for instance. Like, that's a narrative poem about her losing her daughter. Um, it's so beautiful. And I just recommended Gabrielle to you as well, which yeah. is, again, a book-length poem. Um, it was fantastic. About yeah. grief. And these are poems which have stories to tell, which use plain and un, you know not difficult language um, and can really give people access to that. So I think signing up for those poetry websites, looking at prize poems, and then trying to find something which speaks to you through a subject that you're interested in. It doesn't have to be grief. It can be anything. Um, those are probably the easiest ways in. And if you're not sure, go to a bookstore and just ask the bookseller. I mean, we when I did my reading in Vancouver, the bookstore had four shelves of poetry. Yeah. If that's not an indication that poetry is like coming up, as opposed to when I first would go into bookshops, it would just be one tiny, yeah, tiny little, little shelf. The little sliver. Yeah, the little thing sliver of shelf, and this bookstore had full, full bookshelves of poetry. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's amazing. Um, so you can always ask your bookseller if you know you're interested in a particular topic. They'll they'll give you some ideas. And then the other thing I thought of, just because at home sometimes. Barnes and Nobles are the, like the only places to, to go. I mean, they do have the uh, the poetry magazine that comes out monthly. Yes. Um, that is at every Barnes and Noble That's that great. I've been to. Um, there are there are various lit mags um, that I've I've seen there on the regular. I think like the New England Review, uh, the New Yorker uh, usually has some good stuff in there. All those there there's a mix of of other mediums and in there as well. Online, yeah. yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, that's great. And also anthologies. I didn't mention that. Yeah, a push card anthology. I, yep. was, I was thumbing through the 2018 one today. Um, there's the National um, National Poetry Award mm-hmm. um, the anthologies. There's there's a bunch of different uh, different ones. But yeah, I, th- I think starting with with just prize winners is probably a really good yeah a good piece of advice. I guess just kind of going back and just relating as again the we're the caboose of the of the poetry total. <laughs> just back. So when you were talking a little bit about kind of like the way that it's approached in in education, because I think that is, you know, I think that's definitely as someone who didn't get into creative writing kind of on a, you know, on a higher education level or, you know, beyond, I guess, what you're sort of taught in schools as a kid. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. It feels like like you said, Ryan, like poetry seems like ready made for people kind of in the in sort of the era of information that we live in and how we kind of tell our stories are like micro stories or how we kind of have, you know, thoughts and ideas that sort of, you know, come out in, in small little little doses. It just yeah, it's it's it is a shame that poetry sometimes it seems like it gets the rap of being kind of bogged down more in structure and form and like, oh well here's kind of the rhyming scheme of this poem and here's how it's sort of emphasized in this and you uh, or, or just kind of the the association with poetry and like love letters, like <laughs> let me write you some poetry, baby. I, you know, I think that that kind of as a whole sort of combines to it creates this idea of kind of what poetry is that isn't really, I guess, consistent with sort of how vast and and I, I guess the the obviously there are structures there that you kind of look for whenever you're, whenever you're constructing a poem. But the reality of it is, is that it's so open to, to whatever it is that you're feeling and however you want to, you want to construct it. That that is like supremely appealing for somebody who's trying to tell the story or trying to share an idea or a thought because you don't have this sort of rigidity in, in how you're going to do it. And so I, the, the little side note to that was, is I know you guys are at a, you guys are at a, a writing conferences. How is it, is there, do you guys, is there like, uh, I don't know, is there like a difference between the writers? Like you walk into the room, you're like, oh, that person's a poet. <laughs> that, that guy, that guy's narrative nonfiction. That guy's long form fiction. Mm. That guy, I have no idea. That guy just wandered in here off the street. Is there, is there something, can, you know, cause you can kind of, that the closest thing I can think of is if you walk into, you know, like I, I I'm a nerd. I have nerdy hobbies. If you walk into like a, you know, a comic or a game shop or something, you're like, oh, yeah, that guy does that, that guy does that, that guy, I know it immediately. Is that kind of, uh, is that something that happens within the field of writing? Um, I think there are jokes about it, okay? There there are, there are definitely writers who make jokes about that kind of thing. Um, like, oh, that person's a poet, or that person's a novelist. Um, I personally find it very difficult to tell what somebody might write based on the way they look, because... 
like all of writing is creative, isn't it? So yeah. everyone's like quirky yeah. and weird. We're all a bit like obsessed with things and compulsive about our writing. So I think, you know, we're all, we're all writers under the writerly hat, but definitely I think poets don't have a 100% great reputation among the writers. I would say we're just, I think we're seen because of this way as like yeah. maybe loftier or, um, a bit more abstract or yeah, not as, um, not as accessible um, as, as other forms of writing. So that might translate into our personalities in some way. But I don't know. I think all writing and all writers give to each other. So like a lot of the panels that I was attending at AWP were about, you know, how um, nonfiction and poetry speak to each other and mm -hmm. like what the sentence does versus what the line does. I mean, you're talking about this, like I write in fiction. I, I publish a lot of short stories and I'm working on short story collection. Mm -hmm. And I love it for lots of things. Like I love getting to research and I love, um, you know, like making up the perfect paragraph and pulling a story arc over a longer period of time. But I also find it supremely frustrating. Like the sentence is so limiting. Um, whereas mm -hmm. the, the line in the poem, like I have just, it's like when you're writing in prose, you have two colors, you've just got black and white. And that's like your painting. You can only write in black and white because there's only a certain amount of freedom that you can have in your prose writing um, in terms of like the sentence structure and things like that. Yeah. But with poetry, it's like you have all the colors, right? You've yeah. got you've got your word order, which you can mess around with. You've got your weird things, which you can turn into verbs. You've got your line breaks, your stanza breaks. You've got your form, which you can use or not use. You've got your rhyme, which you can use or not use. You've got all of these like amazing things to create something new, which just prose doesn't do. Um, or yeah. it, it just, it's, it's a different form. And there are things which are appropriate for that form. And there are things which are appropriate for poetic form. Um, and I, and I like that idea that we can borrow from each other as writers. So I try not to categorize those writers, but I think that there are people <laughs> who do for sure. Um, and there are jokes about the poets and the prose writers in the room that were going around at IWP for sure. No, it's just an interesting thought. Cause even like, you know, conferences that I've gone, even back, you know, yeah. in the days yeah. Ryan, when we were in a, when we were in a fraternity and we would go, you know, I would mm -hmm. go to these inner fraternity conferences and it'd be like, Oh yeah, that guy isn't that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have, you have associations. It's just, it's just an interesting thought. But you also probably have signals as well. Like someone might be wearing a, a top or a shirt that's like signals. Oh, for sure. But we yeah, don't, we don't wear sure. a lot of our like, you know, favorite poets on our shirts. You don't have like a sign or <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. Poet. This yeah, is, exactly. Definitely this is where all not. the poets go hang out. And that's all the nonfiction over there, and <laughs> you know, over there's the the young adult fiction. Um, I just realized that I, when you were talking earlier about this idea about poetry and and, and its vastness and writing and its vastness and, and there's like how many different things that there are to do, um, you know, I feel like there uh there is a very clear idea of what it means to be a poet and what a poem is. Um, mm -hmm. and actually, you know, you brought up something earlier where you were kind of letting people know that that isn't the case. And I just wanted to hammer that home a bit. Um, like the poets that we read in school or the poets that we are exposed to normally in our lives are such a small fraction of what poetry is. And I think, Absolutely. um, I think, you know, saying that you don't like poetry in a way is kind of like saying you don't like music. Right. You might right. not like classical music. You might find classical music long or boring or not. You're not interested in it. Or you might not like hip hop or you might not like country. But there's so many other types of music and so many other types yep. of musicians that there is something there for you to love. And I feel like poetry is so like that as well. Um, and it just takes some time in the ways that we talked about to like find that um, and to get into that. So I just wanted to make that um coming you know coming around to a point that you had earlier i wanted to make that yeah. clear because i want people to be able to feel like poetry is open to everyone as well like we don't have these kind of clicks necessarily and no, that it's no, no, um no. that it is for everyone there's always something there so uh i think we're about out of time but i wondered if maybe you would read us uh another poem um uh, maybe something that's not in uh in this collection yeah of course um i'm very happy to read another poem um so just a little bit of information I'm, i've talked about it um so my new collection um uh, which is called how to carry fire it's going to be out by parthian books my, my publisher in the spring next year so spring 
2020. Oh my god, how does time go so 2020. fast? 2020. 2020. Oh gosh. Um. So this collection looks at fire in all kinds of different ways. Um. Like metaphorically, like fire in terms of our passion and our love, but also in terms of its destruction. Blah blah blah. So it's lots of things. Um. But at the end of the day, the two people it really looks at are my brother and my husband. So I thought what I would do is read one poem from that collection. Um mainly because I think it's about an important issue and it links to some of the things that we talked about today, which are about, um, you know, family and grief and difficulty. So this collection, uh, or this poem, sorry, was just published in an anthology called 84 in the US or in the UK. It's published by Verve Poetry Press and it's about male suicide and vulnerability and grief. Um, and often because my brother's a heroin addict, when I talk to him, he, talks about wanting to commit suicide because how it's hard to be an addict you know yeah, it's really yeah. really rough so yeah. i'm gonna read this poem about that um which is i guess great for you guys because bringing you right bringing us right down at the end of the episode hey, you know going to uh, something kind of I know. dark <laughs> yeah but anyway coming full circle i thought it would be good um to read it because there are a lot of issues around male suicide at the moment and um yeah this is called an improper kindness Leave rehab. Come sit on my knee like you did when you were my much littler brother, so I can tell you of a place where the bricks of our childhood home still stand, the kitchen smelling sweet of pumpkin pie and whipped cream. Our first pups and geese gather there. It takes away the pain in teeth and brain, stays blue-skied and cloudless. When someone speaks, it makes sense and they smile. Nothing is confusing. Everyone is kind and there are no expectations. You don't have to be a man. I know I shouldn't be telling you now. Should only speak of this place when you're old and rightfully dying. Now, I should say, you must soldier on. Start again with new medicine, new job, new girl, new family, new home. But you are so tired. And the light of the Halican place is getting brighter and warmer, coming just into reach. And so I tell you to go, open the door, be happy. Man, that is that is definitely a definitely a heavy one. So, so you mentioned that you have um, a couple things coming up, a couple readings. You wanna you wanna plug those? Oh yeah, sure. Um, well, I've got a reading on saturday oh my gosh what is the date today or today, oh, next saturday the okay. 13th okay yeah. 13th of april so saturday the 13th of april i'm doing a reading um in the afternoon in cardiff um for the marble poetry magazine okay. which is a cardiff-based magazine everybody should check it out it's a local magazine um and it's not just me it's going to be anyone who's been published in the magazine recently we're going to do a reading from it um all together which will be great so that's around 2 um 2 p.m and you can check out the facebook page for all the details about where it is and then in the afternoon, around 5, I'll be doing a reading for Record Store Day. Do you guys have that here, Record Store Day? Not that I'm aware of. Oh, no? Okay. So Not this familiar. is um, a, a day celebrating record stores. And so okay. there's a massive music and literary poetry festival happening in Newport, Wales. Okay. Um, so I'm going to be reading uh, there at a brilliant pub called The Merringer where I'll be getting to just drink a lot of pints, read a lot of poems, talk about grief. It's going to be ace. And then Solid. people can go and listen to music as well. So yeah, those are my two readings coming up in the next week. Um, so sh should we be super awkward and uh, and uh, tell her uh, what shelf we're going to oh, put rate her book the book on? Oh, oh yeah, rate the book. Please yeah, do, yeah. We'll please first. be honest, no need. I'm just kidding. I'm, I, I just thought I'd put you on the spot <laughs> and see, see where yeah. we're at. Definitely a recommendation. Definitely a recommendation. I mean, I guess just as a, a little closing note, again, as somebody who's not – who hasn't ever really delved into a lot of poetry or yeah. is kind of that like level zero reader in a sense of, you know, just kind of taking in poetry. It was super digestible. I mean, like I probably read through it about five or six times. That's the great thing about poetry, I think, is that you can read it and reread it and reread it and reread it. And uh, and even still, you know, there I, I, I definitely earmarked ones that I that I was especially fond of to go back and reread. So I thoroughly enjoyed it, Christina, and I'm looking forward to to the next one that's coming out next year. And I would definitely recommend it to you know people like me, our level zero readers that are looking to kind of get into poetry, or even just people that 
kind of have, you know, an experience with familial grief or familial loss, I think there's a lot of relatability to there too. And I think there's a lot of like, you know, even, even self catharsis that you can think on and draw from and yeah. just sort of relate to. And I think that that's super important in anything that you take in. So I second that. And so if, I don't know why the hell anybody would listen to a podcast about something they haven't read, but we know that it happens with, with our little book cult here. Um, so if somebody hasn't bought your collection already, where should they go to, to find your, your collection? Okay. So, um, this collection more than you were can be found. It should be still on Amazon in the U S and on Amazon in the UK. Um, but it's always better to buy from the publisher if you can. So this was published by Partheon books. Um, this is just cause it's nice to support independent publishers mm -hmm. and to support the writers by doing that. Um, there are some places that you can find the book in the U S bookstores as well. Um, so if you're at your local bookstore, you can see if it is available and often if it isn't, they might be able to order it. And there are some libraries, like for instance, the one in Michigan yeah. where you can get this book too. So there's some, you know, interesting random distributions of the book around the U S but also Amazon and Parthian books are your friends and you can order them from there. Excellent. Yeah. And Christina, if, if any of our listeners wanted to find out more about you or any of your works or anything, where would we be directing them for that? Oh, great. Um, well, people can find me. I'm always on social media. So my handle is at right to empower. Um, same handle for Twitter and Instagram. And then I also have a website, yeah. which is just christinathatcher.com. And people are welcome to um, visit that and contact me via email there. My information is public. Um, so yeah, that's great. Uh, so we should talk, we should talk next books, huh? Yes. So our next, our next episode will be over, you know, you want this by, uh, Kristen Ropinian. That'll come out on April 22nd. Jacob has the next book after that. We'll get back into our normal cycle and he'll, yeah, it'll he'll... be, it'll be long form fiction. We're going to, we're, I, I've enjoyed our foray into poetry and then we're going to get back into short stories and then we're going to round everything back up and get back into some long form fiction. I haven't decided exactly what yet, but I've got three or four books that I'm narrowing down. All right. So, so we've got that to look forward to. Uh, so I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for, for being a part of this episode. It was, you know, it's kind of a flagship thing that, that we want to start doing from time to time and inviting actual writers to have conversations. So thanks for, thanks for being a part of it. And I, and I do want to say thank you both for having me on. This was really nice. I feel like we could have talked for a lot longer oh, yeah. and had like a really nice, like it's, long It's always our problem. That's, that's, that's how it is. That's how it is. We always, we always get into things and there's probably, you know, an hour or two more of, of things easily to talk about, but yeah. you know, we, we've, <laughs> unfortunately we, we can't have a three hour long podcast. So yeah, we, no. we always, ourselves. we always tend to try to cut ourselves off right around that hour, hour and some change mark. But so. it's great. And, and also Jacob, I just have to say, um, I really appreciate your like openness and your honestness about reading um, poetry collection as a non poetry reader. And that was really great for me to hear. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the collection, but yeah. also that it might, or I hope it might inspire you to, you know, check out some more poetry in the future. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Christina, thank you again for, for being with us. And until next time.